before we start, here's a message from one of our friends. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show where people share their passions. Everyone is a geek about something. I'm your super dummy Paul, on a mission to learn from people's experiences. This is Era of Geek. Another great guest for you today, an example of how wonderful they are, is they were the ones to introduce me to Kevin Conrad, before the two of us had even recorded. They're a truly generous soul, soaked in nerddom. So let's get right into it. Hi, my name is Tim Lapatino, and I'm the author of Art of Atari, co-author of Pac-Man, Birth of an Icon, editor of Undisputed Street Fighter, and various other projects in the pop culture world. People at home won't see this, but you are very ingrained in geek culture. You have a lovely line of things behind you, which I'm going to be slowly looking through as you talk. It's a massive part of your life. Everything you do has sort of seems to be touched by geek culture. For sure. I mean, I think that's... Somewhat by design, somewhat by accident. Uh, you know, my background actually is in journalism. I'm a writer, but I'm also a designer. And I didn't start out, you know, just sort of knee deep in the things that I'm passionate about and love. I really began as a corporate designer, designing logos, uh, you know, working with companies, doing brand executions, publication design, like a lot of the stuff that you would see in a traditional graphic design firm. And that's sort of where I did a good chunk of my work. And it really wasn't until the last handful of years, really. I mean, now we're talking about six, seven, eight years that I've really sort of taken that ball and run with it, but into the realm of sort of geek culture. You know, it's, it sort of happened by accident a little bit. The first step was really working on the book Art of Atari. And I, at the time, I was running a design firm, real small one, with a friend of mine who was in Los Angeles and I was in Chicago. So we kind of had a two small offices and we had a couple other folks who worked with us. And while we were in the midst of, you know, hustling and designing projects and things like that for clients, you know, car companies, uh, IT, you know, food packaging, I mean, all, all the just the, the random things that you do when you're a full service design firm. And then I got connected with some folks who were former artists at Atari. 
you know, and I was really interested in Atari. I grew up with it. You know, some kids, their first system is a Nintendo entertainment system or a PlayStation or something like that. For me, it was the Atari 2600. And I was always very passionate and very interested in the box art. I mean, even as a very small kid, you know, five, six, seven, I just loved that packaging art. And it was something that really stuck with me. And uh, after a few years, you know, of doing logo design and really getting sort of steeped in this culture of like corporate logo design, you know, there's all these famous logos. There's the Nike logo, the swoosh, right? You know, there's the uh, the Polaroid logo or the Apple logo with the, you know, the colored stripes. When those are like, you know, very interesting. That's part of my childhood. But also the Atari logo, you know, even though the company had gone through lots of changes, especially in the 90s, you know, and beyond, that logo has stuck around. And I would consider it really on the same page as some of the great logos of the 20th century. So I didn't, you know, as a designer, I was really interested in, well, who did that logo and what was that about? And I was also very curious about the artwork. I wanted to know more about those artists who were generally pretty uncredited uh, in their era. But, you know, those two things kind of existing together, I started doing a little research. You know, now we kind of joke, like, I've done my own research. But this was actually a time, you know, when you, you could actually do some of your own research. And I started digging into it. And one thing sort of led to another where I got connected to another designer who had grown up down the street from one of Atari's more prolific cover artists named Cliff Spun. And she was nice enough to connect me to him and just had an initial call. And I was just like, I'm so curious about this. So we, we had a really interesting call. Ended up lasting like an hour and a half, almost two hours, way longer than I, you know, it was in the middle of my work day. And I was just like, but I couldn't, I couldn't get off the phone and I didn't want to either because Cliff was just telling me all this stuff about what he remembered about the different pieces of art that he had done. And, uh, you know, a little bit what it was like to work as a freelancer at Atari and some of his thinking. And we went through all these different things from Super Breakout to Surround to, you know, all these games that I grew up with. And just I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, wow, if any other Atari artist has, you know, even remotely the kind of answers that Cliff gave me and the insights that he talked about his, his artistic process, like, I, I feel like I could do a book about this, you know? And so I started, so at the same time that that was happening, you know, Cliff then introduced me to a couple. He's like, Oh, do you know this guy? You should talk to this person. And, you know, suddenly the interviewing started, you know, gathering some momentum, but I didn't have any art yet. And I was sort of, you know, this has been an interest of mine for a while. And I sort of stumbled upon somebody else on one of the, the bigger uh, Atari message boards. I think it was Atari age at the, at the, time atariage.com and i got connected to another fan who had bought a whole bunch of original art now it wasn't like the paintings and stuff it was the slides and the transparencies basically the second generation of this atari art but the huge thing is is these are like these four by five inch transparencies or little slides the thing is with these is that's what they use to produce the art and put it on a package. So if you had those, you could reproduce the art at large sizes, larger than, you know, some of the originals. And I was able to acquire a bunch of this art and, you know, of all these slides and transparencies. And there was, you know, 50, 60, 70, whole bunch of stuff. And finally, with these two things, I looked at it and I was like, oh, I could actually make a book. 
So that was a whole that's a whole other process. But that sort of led me down the road of creating this book. I got connected to the publisher who had a license from Atari. We did this book in kind of a ridiculous amount of short time after I'd been working on it for a couple of years. And uh, that sort of touched it off. You know, it connected to me to all these different things. It connected to me to a uh, toy company that I do design work for. It connected me to, uh, you know, the people that I work with today at a company called MobiFox, where we do all these uh, pop culture licensed, you know, watch bands for smartwatches. Uh, you know, it tied me to the video game world. Uh, and I got to meet all these people. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm working on something for G.I. Joe or Transformers or Pac-Man, you know, and this whole thing is just kind of snowballed where I get a chance to touch and work on the properties and speak on the things that uh, that I'm really interested in. So, like, that's how it happened sort of professionally. And just one thing sort of led to the other and connected these dots. And then you realize, wow, you know, the the culture, the geek culture is at least people for people my age, it's somewhat small for people actually working in these different industries, you know, whether you're talking about toys or electronics or video games. And once you start to get to know some people and you have a good reputation for doing good work, then there's all kinds of interesting things that start to pop up. I mean, it's incredible that all of that came out of essentially a conversation and you accidentally found yourself writing a book. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, you know, I wanted to write a book and I, it really, but I, you know, for me, it was like, I wanted to scratch this itch. I was like, I want to know who created that logo and who designed that art. And what was that like? You know, I'm the kind of guy who, if I buy a DVD or something, you know, or a Blu-ray, I always listen to the director's commentaries. I'm a sucker for the behind the scenes because I'm really interested in creative process and how people do the work they do and why they do it and how they think about it. You know, that's always been fascinating to me. And that's what I wanted to explore here. So some of it was like, oh, that would, that would make for a cool coffee table book with big art. But it, it really was just sort of almost selfish where I wanted to answer those questions. And that was a book that I would have wanted on my shelf. And, and, and then suddenly, you know, after doing book work in other fashions and other, you know, other ways, I had done writing before, I had written a blog for a few years uh, you know, I have a journalism background, and I had also designed some actual books with uh, my business partner. But those all those things all sort of came together in the art of Atari, and it was very much about, oh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna call this person, I'm gonna have this conversation, and I I think one of the lessons that it sort of taught me was I just try to say yes to as much as I can. You know, you open that door, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, here's a great example: uh, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Uh, you know, we were talking about just before this, you know, I got involved a little bit with uh, Kevin Conran's book called uh, Kevin Conran's uh, Sky Captain and the Art of Tomorrow, talking about his creative process. But we didn't start talking about that. We started talking about something else that I've been working on, a book about the uh, futurist and illustrator named Arthur Radabaugh, who was kind of a futurist in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. And I knew of Kevin's art from the movie. And so I reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, do you have any connection to this art? And he said, well, absolutely. This artist was one of the people who really influenced me in making that movie. And so, boom. So all of a sudden that blows another door open because I interviewed him for this book that, you know, I'm still working on <laughs> to this day. But it's opened all sort of uh, interesting opportunities because I just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to reach out to this person and see what happens. It's incredible. It's very um very fitting so a look behind the scenes for the listeners is we were um 
we were introduced uh, by Aussie Steve, who our listeners will know from season one. Um, and he's interviewed you a couple of times. And in, when I was talking to him, because he has a podcast, The Retro Project, where he's spoken to lots of amazing people, including yourself. And he described that whole podcast to me as basically a con job. He just wanted an excuse <laughs> to speak to all these great, amazing people. It seems very fitting that he introduced me to yourself because you seem to have that ability to just somehow get it done. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I mean, people talk about, you know, when they see a project that I'm working on and they say, oh, that's a passion project. I, I take that as a compliment, but I also sometimes think that, you know, it's, there's more than just passion. There's a lot of people like me who know way more about a certain, you know, kind of geek topics and are very passionate and that's great. But that's only part of it, right? You know, the other mm -hmm. there's I feel like there's two other parts. There's there's passion, relationships, and obviously you need to have some talent, right? If you if you do work and it's not that good, that it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing is just relationships, you know, and being able to connect with people just on this human basis, like like Steve. You know, we were introduced through uh, you know another different mutual friend, and it was sort of like, hey, do you want to be on this this podcast? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, and now we have now we have this relationship, and it's it just spirals out, and suddenly you're you've gotten all these cool friends who have a some sort of shared love or at least a shared understanding, and I, I think that's the fun part of this for me. You know, whether it's a book or a podcast or something, I love hearing how people are connected to the stuff, why they do what they do, and uh, that part of it is honestly fun for me. I mean, I talk to some other authors authors who really love to do books, and then they're like, yeah, you know, I don't. Now I have to go promote it. Like that's really fun for me. I feel like that's the bonus. That's the the dessert at the end of the meal. Like making a book's a hard a hard job, but then going out and promoting it like that's sort of the the icing on the cake because you get to connect with people and you get to talk to them about the things they're passionate about. And some people think, oh, you know, you stand in line, and you sign books, autograph books or something that it's some sort of ego stroke. And for me, it's. I mean, it's really nice and I'm, I'm really thankful for it. But what, what I really, what really happens is, you know, people come and they say, I liked your book. You know what? It reminds me of this. It reminds me of the first time I, you know, got it, brought an Atari home or my favorite movie or whatever it is. And we connect about that. So my work is, I sort of see it as like a vehicle to, to connect to the things that people are really passionate about. And so, you know, I, I'm sort of this gateway or something, um, you know, so I don't, I don't take it all and, you know, I have this big head and being like, wow, I'm so great. It, it's not really about me. It's about sort of connecting people with these things. I'd tell one more story um, about it's related to that. I do some work for Super 7, uh, designing package design for their uh, like sort of retro styled action figures. And I did some work on a couple of gem and the holograms action figures, which was a total blast. I did not grow. I, I was aware of gem growing up as a kid, you know, for people who don't know, gem is a superhero slash uh, rock star, you know, and she like turns into a rock star persona and like, you know, fights the bad guys who are like a punk band and, you know, uh, solves crimes and things like that. I'm, I'm sure I'm not doing it justice, but I mean, it has this really cool eighties sort of, um, you know, pop sort of punk aesthetic. It's really, really interesting, but I wanted to tackle it because I thought it would be really fun to work on it from a design perspective. And it was. And then when those figures came out, 
there's there's this small but very passionate gem in the holograms fan base and there's all these people saying i bought this because of the packaging for me it was really exciting not because my work was so amazing was about connecting people to this thing that they really really loved and in this case it just happened to be gem in the holograms Mm. because this isn't about your book but i've spent the last couple of days reading it so it's in my head um but this, it comes your passion, your interest in the people. It really comes through in the book because it's called the art of Atari, and you've done the the play on word of the word art because it has literally the art in it, but it also has the art of what they were doing, and it's almost a book of two halves. In there's a history of not only the company but also a lot of detail about the people, and as you say back then they weren't even really allowed to put their name in the credits. So that's a really big thing. And it, that passion really comes through in that and that connection to the people. Yeah. You know, I, some of that was, I wanted to focus on the things that I knew about, you know, and I'm not trying to write a history of Atari because other people had done it and done it better. They know more than me. I want to write a little bit about the history, but I was really interested in the people and especially the people who maybe were overlooked. Right. You know, like we don't generally think of graphic designers, art directors, illustrators. They're not unless they're Frank Frazetta or uh, Alex Ross, you know, like there's a tippity top of famous people um, in terms in our in our circles. Right. But I I think in general, those people aren't well known. And I was just really excited to sort of pull back the curtain and talk about those people. You know, and have them talk about their process and give people a sense of if you stepped into the offices of Atari, you know, what what could it be like? And I, th- I think one of the nicest compliments I got, I remember I was in Portland for a retro gaming uh, show, the Retro Gaming Expo in Portland. And one of the former Atari programmers, you know, just came to me and he said, you know, I read your book and you really captured what it was like to be there. And and th- that was a huge compliment because obviously I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't even alive for some of that stuff you know I mean <laughs> for the very beginnings you know I but I mean I was very small when it was all going on so the idea that I could sort of be a conduit for these people and their stories and their journeys and the way they think about the work um, you know decades later I think was was really satisfying. Yeah, it really comes through. It's, there's little moments in the book where I'm reading it and I can tell that your sort of your writer mind has drifted a little bit and your passionate geek side has come through and there's this, these little bits every now and then where you suddenly get really excited and it's just so lovely to read because it shows that you're not doing it you're not just doing it for a paycheck basically when sometimes you can read these things and they're just going through the motions but you definitely weren't doing that for sure. I mean, I, you know, with that book, I really felt like, okay, if this is the only book of its kind, I want to have as much in there for the fans as possible. If I, you know, if I were a fan, what would I want in there? And really trying to do that. And, I, you know, hey, don't get me wrong. Paychecks are nice. Money is good. You know, you can't, uh, you can't eat your dreams in some <laughs> senses. But, but on the other hand, I think about it, you know, some people just want to kind of call it a day. I. I really do feel like the more great stuff you have in there, the more you're connected to those fans, uh, you know, the better the project, you know, and the more people will like it. And I think, so I, you know, I, there were definitely times 
whether it's we're talking about Pac-Man or whether we're talking about the Art of Atari, where we were like ready to be done and some something new would kind of walk in the door. And uh, you could either be like, okay, are we going to move heaven and earth to make that happen and get that in there? Or we're just going to be like, you know what, let's just, you know, let's just stick with what we've got. And uh, even with Art of Atari, I remember we were weeks away from our our printing deadline to like send everything off finally to the printer and it had to be done. No questions asked. Uh, a guy who's a now friend of mine connected me with somebody who had some of the original logo concepts for the Atari logo, like the other logos that didn't get chosen. And he's like, you know, can you do this? And so I scrambled to make it happen and we squeezed it into the book, you know, and, and, and if you're looking, it's kind of inelegant because everything was kind of done, you know, but we did it. I'm like, this is awesome. We have to have this in there. Like if I, you know, I'm putting my fan hat on what I want that well, for sure. You know what? Readers are fine with a little, you know, a little digression, a little diversion here or there. I mean, you know, what are the stories that you're really excited about? I think for me, talking about Pac-Man, you know, the Pac-Man Birth of an Icon book we did, um, I was really interested in coming at it from a different angle, right? So we told the story, the history of Pac-Man and, and its sort of genesis in Japan. But that's the story that people kind of know, you know. Tori Uitani has a pizza. He takes a slice out of the pizza and he has a eureka moment. He's like, this is the character. This is going to be the game. And, uh, and that's, you know, true story. And that's great. And that's fun. And I wanted to tell that story and get it down, you know, sort of, you know, in print. But also I wanted to tell the story of, okay, that game wasn't that successful in Japan. What happened between there and the time it got to Chicago, which is what, where I'm, where I live and where I'm from. Um, what happened there? Why was it such a big deal if you were a kid growing up in the 80s? And I wanted to talk about that Chicago connection and who were the unheralded people who helped make this thing a, a Saturday morning cartoon. And, a, you know, at one point, I think uh, more people recognized Pac-Man than Santa Claus. So, uh, you know, I want to tell that story. And that's that's a that's a dig deep kind of story. But, you know, for me, it's like, if I'm going to do it, I have to be interested in telling that story. And that was one of the threads that I really wanted to pull on. It's so amazing. I'm looking forward to reading that book now. I'm going to basically pile through all your books now. Um, <laughs> you should take a break and read something <laughs> else in between. I, you want to burn out too much, Tim. Do you think that digging deep into the conversations with the people looking at their process, has that changed the way that you approach things? Yeah, I think it, it gets me to appreciate just the creative process in general. I'm one that there's lots of different ways to do it, but also um, that, you know, it helps me, you know, when I'm working with my designers or working with my creative teams that, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of flexibility because I've seen creativity manifest in a lot of different ways. I know there's my way of doing things. I know there's other people's, you know, I sort of know the creative journeys of people going back decades, you know, being friends with Kevin Conran, understanding a little bit of how, uh, things get greenlit in Hollywood and what the process was to go from an indie film to a uh, major, you know, motion picture with Angelina Jolie and an eye patch, you know, I, you know, like th those things are really interesting. So I think that provides a, a perspective that uh, hopefully, you know, shows up in my work, but also lets me work with people better. Yeah. Cause the, the environment that they worked under, it was the way you describe it, it was such a, such a family environment and also just so freeing for what people were doing. Cause you mentioned the Pac-Man there and there's images in there of the Atari designs of Pac-Man. And yeah. it's so, yeah. it's, it's instantly recognizable, but also completely unique. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think the question is the context. You know, when we talk about Atari 2600 Pac-Man, I grew up with that game and I played the heck out of it. There's some people, you know, who really dislike that game because it's not like the arcade Pac-Man. But I look at the context, you know, I look at it's really easy to type something out on the Internet and be like, worst game ever. (laughs) Right. You know, and just kind of have a hot take about it. That's easy. But I think what's hard is understanding that all if you're a creative person and you're in a creative field, you know that everything is done either under a deadline or under some sort of context. And you understand that, sure, maybe fans don't care about that. They don't care. They just care about the end product. But you got to but to be a creative person, you got to understand there's always limits and there's always rules and there's always some reason for something to be that way. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes things just suck. I mean, <laughs> I mean let's be honest. Not everything's amazing, you know, and that's yeah. fine. And I think, but I, it, it gives you a lot more empathy for people who, uh, who do creative work. And you know that, yeah, you know, not every, not everything is going to be a home run, right. You know, and you got to be content with occasionally because the, to mix uh, gaming metaf- gaming and sports metaphors, you know, sometimes you got to take the hand that's dealt to you and be be okay with hitting a single or a double instead of a home run. Yeah, I think you've sort of illustrated there what this world needs more empathy for realizing what the work people have done uh, and the situations that they're in as well, because it's not always as black and white as we may think it is. For sure, and I think I think if you I think if you appreciate that or you're in a creative field where you have similar pressures, I think those people are, you know, not going to be the people who go see the Batman movie this weekend and be like, this sucks. This is the worst movie ever. Cause you know that everybody, everybody reports to somebody else, you know? And, uh, and I think that's helpful, but it, it's fun just to hear, okay, you got thrown a curveball. How do you deal with it? Mm. Now you mentioned your history there. So who are you outside of this? Do you have sort of other interests, hobbies? How would you describe yourself outside of the geek corner? Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a visual guy. I think uh, as much as this sort of, you know, the geeks sort of subcultures have sort of consumed a lot of my working life, uh, you know, I'm still really into those things. I mean, it's challenging when you're designing things for you know, Marvel watch bands or whatever it is. And, you know, we get these style guides and then there's all these spoilers in there. And as a fan, I'm like, I don't want to see this. But, you know, as a professional, I'm like, well, I, you know, I need to know these things. It's going to help me do what I need to do. Um, so I, you know, I can sort of separate being a fan and being a professional about this stuff. But, you know, for me, I, I'm interested in architecture. I, you know, I love modern architecture. I love mid-century modern. You know, I've got kids, obviously, who have all their own interests. You know, I play video games with them, and they they just beat me roundly, consistently. You know, on any modern console. But uh, you know, so I, you know, I like to get outside and do things like that. But you know, a big portion of sort of quote unquote living the dream, I guess, is being able to work on the things that I'm passionate about and I'm interested in, you know, and, and have it be something that is also a sustaining career. And I, I think it's, cha- it's a challenge because it's not always, it's not clear. It's like, you know, there's some careers, you know, I don't know if you're a lawyer or if you're a doctor, there's a, there's a way, there's a progression, you know, you get your degree and then you do your residency and then you, you know, become a partner, you know, whatever those things are, there's sort of a, you know, what's the next step in line. And the, the career I've chosen has not, has not been that way because we're sort of, I'm making it up as I go, which, you know, is fun. 
and sometimes it's stressful as well because you you don't know exactly where all this is going. But it's also exciting to sort of carve your own path a little bit. It's interesting because this episode that released a guy called um, Professor Elemental. Um, he's a he's what's he's called himself a chap hop artist. He does hip hop in like old school steampunk British style, and he says he absolutely loves it. But also sometimes there are times where he absolutely hates it because he's now got this hobby which is his job all the time, and he can't escape it, and he has to do all the boring stuff to go with it. But you are you at that stage where you're in such a changing environment that you don't experience that? Um, you know, I think it's. Yes and no. I think sometimes it is. I mean, the professional side of doing some of this work is very different than the fan side. So, I mean, you know, being a creative director or, you know, writing a book, like there's a definitely a different side of it than just being a fan and geeking out on the internet or making your own stuff. So there's always an element of, you know, the creative, the actual professional side is going to be a little different but it's adjacent to the fun stuff right you know it's still work i mean for sure you know and there's plenty of times where i sweat it out you know late nights doing work and you're like ah you know i really just want to go and you know try and catch up on star trek discovery or whatever it is which i'm way behind on apparently i i just discovered it myself this year and that's one of my you know my pressure release valves but uh, you know, sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, I just want to, let's, I just want to go out in nature. I don't want to hear about Spider-Man. I don't want to hear about uh, where you need me to place the Harry Potter logo, you know, <laughs> and you know, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I think it's healthy also to treat it as a job as well. But I, you know, I think for me, the job and the fun parts have been different enough and they keep changing that I don't, it's not like I started blogging and having fun. And then that turned into my, my full-time job. Like it's not quite a one-to-one for me. It's, it's sort of been the jumping off point uh, for, you know, all these interesting opportunities. It's not like, uh, you know, someone said, Oh, you've been faithfully doing your fun blog for a year and now you have to do that for the rest of your life. I, you know, like that, it's not like that for me, but you know, I try and keep it interesting cause I sort of get bored easily. Um, you know, I spent a year of the pandemic uh, this was related to the Pac-Man book, but it happened before it, where I ran a Twitter account called 365 of Pac-Man. So every day of 2020, I did I played a game of Pac-Man, or I you know found a Pac-Man collectible, or I wrote about something that was related to Pac-Man. I tried to play basically every game, every different Pac-Man game I could get my hands on. Um, and, you know, and that was a real challenge and that was really, really hard. And halfway through it, I was like, what am I doing? Why did I do this? <laughs> but it was, it was really challenging to write and post for an entire year daily about, you know, what it was like to find a 40 year old box of Pac-Man cereal and eat it. Um, spoiler alert, it was gross, uh, but not as bad as you'd think. The actual, the gum from a Pac-Man trading card pack, way more disgusting. It actually like really didn't agree with me. Um, but, you know, trying to do some fun things and learn some things along the way, you know, that was, I mean, that was a great distraction uh, during a really challenging year. So I'd like to, uh, you know, it's fun to do this stuff out in public and, uh, you know, not because I want acc- accolades or anything, but because you do interesting things and you do it out in public, then I think it leads to more opportunities, you know, which is really fun. Oh, yeah. You're that insane person who uh, eats 40-year-old cereal. Uh, you know, maybe we could work with you. I mean. That happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, at the end of it, you'll either be Pac-Man guy or Serial guy. Could go either right, way. Right, right, exactly. So that's why I got to keep changing because I'm I'm not Pac-Man guy 
or you know i mean i, I wrote a book about pac-man but you know i'm interested in other things uh as well so i like i'd like to continue to move on but you can totally see there's definitely a blast radius of things that i'm interested in and i think you know my sort of you know my actual you know birth into geekdom i think really happened you know i was a kid who grew up with he-Man and Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe and Transformers. I mean, just like the normal kid. That was the stuff that was popular when I, uh, you know, was a kid. But I think my sort of true sort of baptism, if you will, into, you know, serious geekiness was the 1989 Batman movie. And uh, I remember, I can remember distinctly during the summer, I think it was that su- earlier that summer before the movie had come out, I was watching TV with my brothers. I have three younger brothers and they showed the first picture that I had ever seen of Michael Keaton, Batman in this black leathery costume. And it just blew my little mind. You know, I, you know, I knew Batman. I watched the cartoons and all that stuff. And I read the comic books growing up. And then I saw that and I was like, what? Like it was so cool and so punk. And it was, it was just this really different thing. And it felt like real and awesome. And, I just was blown away by the coolness of it. So I went to see that movie, but it also sort of was like my gateway drug because then that's the summer where, uh, you know, shortly after that other movies, even the next summer you had things like Dick Tracy and, you know, who framed Roger rabbit and all, I mean, is this really, this really interesting time ghostbusters two for all of the, these, you know, these films and stuff. And I really started getting into movies. I started getting into film and really interested in, you know, being a kid who'd like to go to the movies. So I went to see all sorts of things, but that led me to the comic books and the action figures and that stuff that, uh, you know, I sort of carried with me, you know, and as a, you know, a kid, you know, I, okay, I got a teenager, then I discovered girls. So I, you know, sort of put some of that stuff down a little bit, but it's stuff that I've always been aware of. And it's just really interesting to see, like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, junior high and high school, I'd go to comic book conventions. Those are places where, you know, in poorly lit hotels, you know, dusty bins of comic books, you know, bunch of, you know, big sweaty guys with uh, questionable, uh, you know, uh, bathing habits. I mean, <laughs> that's what it was like. And and now you turn around and you're like, wow, you go to a comic book convention or, you know, San Diego or something. And it's so interesting and diverse. And there's, there's, actual women there there's all the you know it's people are bringing their own stuff to it and the geek stuff has kind of conquered the cult culture a little bit and i think that's so interesting for me because it's like you it's not what you would have expected but it's really interesting to see the things that you know hey i was into when when not that many of my friends were into them okay you know we were a small group of people who you know played dungeons and dragons or role-playing games and read comic books and watched the flash on TV. Um, but now that's mainstream stuff. That's big business. Do you really think that um, it's all positive then? Because there are, there's been a couple of times when I've had conversations with people and they've, there's almost a slight resentment that all these people love the things that you love now. Um, and as professor elemental said, you haven't put the work in, you weren't there through the tough times. Do you think it, it's, it's really good thing. Do you have some reservations about it? Uh, you know, I think by and large, I'm positive about it. I feel like there's always room on the bandwagon, you know, and I, I think there's people who like stuff. You just liked it, right? You know, I liked the X-Men cause I thought it was cool. You know, I liked, 
Batman because I just was drawn to the art and the stories. And it wasn't because I got something out of it. I just really enjoyed it for what it is. And I feel like if that's if that's what you want, that's what you want. This idea of, you know, this is a popular word of like gatekeeping it and saying, you know what, you're not as big a fan, so we don't want to let you in the club. I just feel like everybody starts out being a small fan. You know, I mean, you get into it, you know, nobody comes in fully fully baked and fully formed as this super ultra fan who can edit all the Wikipedia entries, right? You know, like you start somewhere, you're like, I don't know, I just read this one, I thought it was cool. And I feel like if, if we don't allow that, if we sort of gatekeep off, be like, you know what, this is for you, this is the hardcore fans, sorry, there's a velvet rope between us, like that just feels kind of mean. And I think it forget it, you forget what it's like to come in with no knowledge. You know, I could I could have done the same thing, you know, whether you were talking about the Atari fandom or, uh, you know, comic books. I mean, I know a lot about Batman, you know, but I also, you know, for the last 15 years, I don't know that much. So there's people who know way more about the Court of Owls and, you know, Jorge Jimenez and the, you know, the super popular artists. And that's fine. You know, I don't it's not on me to be the super fan all the time. But also, I'm not going to look down my nose on someone who's never read The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. You know, I'm going to say to them, oh, you don't know that? I'm not going to be like, yeah, you're not a real fan because you haven't read Batman Year One. I'm going to be like, you know what? Here, read this. This is fun. That's And that's really fun for me. Like, I think I, I really like the idea of sort of ushering people into it, sort of curating it and suggesting stuff and, you know, almost evangelizing and saying, hey, you know what? I really enjoyed this book. You should check it out. And like that's a very different posture than saying you haven't read this book. I don't think you're you're cool enough, or I don't know if you're a big enough fan. I mean, why are we associating like a negative social cost? You know, I mean, you know, when I was you know twelve and I liked Batman and be like, oh, that's not cool to like or whatever. You know, like I didn't. Nobody wants to be like you know have a cost for what they like. Saying, oh, you're going to be ostracized because you're a comic book guy. That's lame. You know, so why would I put that on anybody else? You know, like I'd say, you know, the, the more the merrier. Now, I think it's nice to, you know, to have some perspective. You know, you have somebody who watches the Flash TV show and they're like, I'm the biggest hardcore Flash. Well, you know, you weren't even alive when the, the first TV show came out. You know, I mean, so it's good to have some perspective. But you also realize, you know what, there, there's plenty of room, you know, on the train as far as I'm concerned. You do seem to have, like, you don't have a corner of the geek section you described that the big thing for you was that film but you had read watched some of the cartoons and read some of the comic books i said at the beginning but you are you are basically geek <laughs> you are every corner of it you what is it about the geek culture that you think speaks to you uh you know i think i think some of it is just the creativity i mean if you're talking about comic books or video games you know there's the storytelling aspect you know i really you know talk about movies like i I'm a, i consider myself a storyteller you know i love to tell stories i'm really interested in that uh, i'm also a visual person so you know think about comic you know i'm a design i'm a graphic designer so when i look at spider-man you know i think about oh it's really interesting how you know even the the costume the original spider-man costume or the black spider-man costume like as a piece of design like how does that work so i look at it you know from a couple different angles and i just think the stuff it's just interesting you know it's fun to see why do we why do we keep coming back to superheroes you know whether you look at 
in the 50s, the Superman TV show was really popular. Or in the 30s, in the 40s, there was the Superman cartoons that they show before film that were like really well done. Now, the 80s, it was the first you know live action superhero movie that really kind of broke through. And you just see this stuff continue to pop up, um, you know, in the culture. In some ways, it's it's a little bit of like modern myth making. You know, where I think we have shared stories that everyone can connect to the nerdy kid who got bitten by a radioactive spider and, you know, doesn't know how to handle it all, right? Or, you know, you can connect with this, okay, what would it do to you if you saw your parents shot in front of you, you know, and you kind of claimed vengeance on, you know, on the world? I think those are sort of, they're a little bit universal in their themes, and I think that's really interesting. So I think the storytelling plus the visual side. I'm a visual person. I'm a designer. Um, so I like I like the combination of those two things. And I think you see them a lot in all this geek stuff. Was that sort of true as when you were a kid then, when you were first looking at the comic books, the cartoons? Was it very much visual and storytelling? Yeah, I think so. And I, I you know, I've always had a, a writer's bent as well. So I loved books. You know, I was reading Stephen King way earlier than I should have been reading Stephen King, you know, but tra- transfixed by that stuff and loving someone be able to sort of jump into their world and, you know, usher me through it and tell stories. So I love, you know, I have friends who are just unbelievable, like, you know, with numbers and, you know, projecting and, how strategic they are, you know, one's an actuary, the other, this one's an engineer. My brain does not work like that. You know, my, it just doesn't, you know, to my, to my detriment probably. But, uh, you know, I, I do connect with stories. I do connect with creators and creating. And I think there's a lot of that here. Mm. Was there ever a time, cause you, as you say, you're a writer, you're very much a, an artistic person. Was there ever a time when you thought, maybe you could do this, you could do comic books or animation, anything like that? Um, you know, it's something that I've thought about at different points. You know, I'm, I'm not a great artist. I'm a very mediocre artist. Uh, um, but, you know, and I don't know that I have a great American novel in me necessarily, but I would love to, you know, if the opportunity came to, you know, try my hand at, you know, writing a comic book or something like that, or being involved in character design or something like that, I would, I would love to do that. Cause I think, I think some of the, there's a lot of crossover, right? You know, if you're writing a history book or you're writing, uh, you know, you're writing about characters, I, I think I could do some of those things. I mean, obviously I'd like to leave it, some of it to the professionals, but, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say, yeah, you know, be on my bucket list to uh, write an issue of a comic book that, you know, that was like a Marvel or DC. I would love it. I have no idea how exactly to do that. I mean, I have some sense of it. I have some sense of what goes into it, but I would love to do that. I would love to, you know, tell a story that turned into a children's book or a, you know, a movie or something like that. So I, that, that would be really interesting to me. I don't know if I'll get there, but uh, you know, I, I keep putting my fingers in pies. I mean, it's, it's fun to, you know, I, you know, later this year, well, some uh, toys will come out, uh, you know, films that I grew up with. I got to design the packaging for toys related to those, you know, so who knows? I, you know, 10 years ago, if you said, Tim, you're going to write a book about Pac-Man or you're going to, you know, design action figure packaging of the characters that you grew up and loved. You know, I would have been like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see how that's going to happen, but you know, I've learned to never say never. Who knows? Yeah. You're only one conversation and an accidental agreement away from. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly true. 
you know, and I think that's, I think that's fun. I think you've got to, you got to take some risks and try and say yes to these things and see where they go. Um, obviously, you know, there's the responsible side of you. Got to feed your family, pay your mortgage, all that stuff. And that's like really important. Clearly, you know, that's number one, but also like, I think the ideal is like, can you do the thing you love and do it with people you like and, uh, and make a living at it? I think that's always the goal. I mean, would you have any advice for someone who's looking at sort of a risk like that about whether or not they should take it and the calculated risk on it? I mean, I would say try and say yes to things, you know, I, you know, I recognize how much when I started doing side projects, when I was doing different work than this, you know, like that Atari book started as a side project. Um, it meant that I wasn't doing other things. I was watching a lot less TV and I was doing that. And that's, you know, so that's some of the cost, mm. you know? So I think, are you willing to give up some of the other things to try some of these side hustles and see if they work? Um, but I think the other thing is, is you got to be very real with yourself. Is it, is it good enough? Right. You know, hold it up to the professional standards and just, you know, and look at it and take a cold, hard look in the mirror. Is it good enough? You know, I, when I wrote the art of Atari, that was probably the most words that I had ever strung together in terms of a book. And it's a pretty small book in terms of the writing, but it was a lot, right? You know, and I, I was very conscious of the fact that, hey, I'd written long articles, I'd written features, I had written a lot of blogs, but it was a jump, right? I wasn't totally 100% sure that I could, you know, how would that go? Do I know how to do that? You know, well, and I did it and it was okay. It turned out all right. There's things I would change. And then when you jump to something like uh, the Pac-Man book where, you know, we're talking now a lot more words, you know, there's, it's, uh, you know, tens of thousands of words, many, many. And that was, you know, out of my comfort zone a little bit as well. You know, I was pretty sure I could do it, but, you know, I kept holding up to it, like the professional standard that I have, you know, and looking at other people's stuff. And it's like, is this good enough? Is this as good as that? And I think that's a cold heart. You got to ask other people. You're like, am I, am I, am I really good at this? And, you know, find somebody who's not your wife or your girlfriend or your brother or your best friend, who's going to tell it to you straight, you know, and say, yeah, you know, you can still work on this or yeah, you know, maybe just keep that as a hobby. You know, I think you need somebody to, to tell it to you and, you know, for real and say, Hey, you know what? That needs some work. And I think that's the most loving thing. So I think those are the two big things is say yes to it, try it. Cause nobody gets any points for saying no or being like, ah, I'm not so sure. I don't know if I have time or, you know, that sounds like it'd be hard. I think you just got to go for it. And, uh, I think those doors, I don't know. It's easy for me to say this in privilege because, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, whatever, you know, I had some time, I was able to do this and make those connections, but I'm not, I'm not any sort of genius. I'm not, I'm not rich and well-connected. I, you know, I just started talking to people and being kind to people, not just to get what I wanted, but because that's what I believe is the right thing to do and all sorts of doors are open. So in that way, yeah, absolutely go and do it. Cause if I can do it, then surely you can do it. <laughs> you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer here. Um, I, I should be, I should be an aspirational story. Cause if I could do it, surely a lot of other people can too. Yeah, I mean the way you describe it, the the way that you kind of, I mean, yeah, I, I joke about it slightly, but you accidentally fell into it. It's it, it could yeah. happen to anyone that way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, you know, I feel I've been blessed with all sorts of interesting opportunities. And if I brought something to it, maybe it's a little bit of moxie and just saying, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to call this person. You know, and, but also, you know, you've got to make friends with people. If you come into a situation where it's like, 
I'm just out for to get what I can get from you. People, you know, find that in the, you know, they can tell really quickly that that's the case, that you're just here for what you can get out of the relationship. Whereas me, I, I actually like people. I, I, I just like getting to know people. I'm really interested in creative folks who, you know, who do things, you know, and I'm, and I'm not shy about asking, you know, for help or asking what they think. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, Super 7, uh, those guys who I, some of my favorite people on the planet. You know, I met them through a friend of a friend who was, you know, a friend of mine here in Chicago, knew some of them. So I reached out to them and we had talked about doing a book signing uh, in, you know, in California, at one of the Super 7 stores. And that led to lunch and that led to an ongoing relationship that led to being able to do some design work. And now, like, you know, I've got all kinds of good friends over there. And that's just really fun to just connect those dots. So if you come in with an agenda and say, oh, okay, I'm going to be the number one top dog here and I'm going to meet all the, the movers and the shakers, that's one thing. But I think it's more about, you know what, just see where the relationships go and enjoy people for who they are. Cause that's fun. I, I just like meeting people. I like hanging out. I'm a kind of an extrovert, but I'm curious about people's stories. What do they think about the things they do? And we can just share those interests. I think that's the fun thing about people forget about sort of the geek culture. It's one of the things that connects us, right? This love for this stuff is a really, really fun bridge, but it's got to go beyond that. Right. You know, you're not just like, let's only talk about, spider-man right you know it's like you know <laughs> yeah. you're a cool guy who likes spider-man but you know what also i'm really interested in what else you do and that's how those relationships unfold and then all kinds of fun things happen mm. uh, i'm curious about how when you were growing up about the relationships you had around you your parents your siblings the the friends that as you were going through geek culture how their reactions were and um sort of how they imprinted on you, whether you think that made a difference to the way that you see other people. Yeah. You know, I, my brothers and I, we all had our things, you know, whether it was Atari or, you know, one of my brothers was really into Star Trek. My other brother was a teenage manager turtles. I mean, we all had the things we were into. And uh, I think from the start of it, you know, my parents were like, Hey, that's cool. You know, we like that. That's fine. We'll buy you some of the toys and, you know, read the, you know, they weren't put off by that. You know, we did a lot of things though. I mean, you know, we played on computers, we played, we all played sports, you know, I mean, we, you know, so we got, we actually got outside too. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think I was generally raising a family and saying, Hey, you know, that stuff's fine. You know, it's not like, um, you know, so I think you grow up in that and you're like, okay, you know, like that is, that's cool. And then it sort of stays with you. I mean, but I think there's an ebb and flow and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I was sort of done with video games for the most part when I got to college and then I, you know, my freshman year of college, so this is still the, you know, the mid, I date myself here, but this is the mid nineties and I got to school and, you know, and I hadn't picked up an Atari and, you know, for a while, you know, that's the mid nineties already. And I had a bunch of guys on my dorm floor who were, who would play it to have a, Atari tournaments on their dorm floor. And, you know, we would play warlords and stuff. Like we'd have these like round robin tournaments and it was really, and it, I was like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot. And so I went home, you know, from school and pulled that stuff out of, you know, out of the dusty place that it was in my basement. And that sort of re-energized me. And then the internet, I think was a really interesting thing where it's like, Oh, you know what, what else is out there? Well, that was right around the same time when the first fan games started getting made for the Atari 2600, where you have these homebrew games and that was really my introduction to 
sort of fan culture, right? You know, when there's people making stuff on their own and talking about it. Early, early internet, I remember I uh, was flirting with some girl that I, that I saw, I met on the internet who had an Atari shirt. And I'm like, oh, that's a great Atari shirt. And uh, one, you know, thing went to another. She gave me free tickets to go see They Might Be Giants. I had like VIP VIP seats to go see They Might Be Giants. And that was it. That was, it never actually went in anywhere, which is fine. But you would never do that today on, on the 2022 internet. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I think for me, it's my family is like, I think the interesting thing for us is this professionalization of the geek stuff. The idea that, okay, that's all fun and good. You have a basement full of toys and the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier or whatever it is. And, um, but there's actually people who make that stuff and they do that stuff and they're, and it's, it's not just a small thing. It's a big business and there's, there's a lot to be done there. So my thinking is, is, uh, you know, you got to work. It's fun to, you know, I've designed a lot of other things that are really interesting. You know, I've worked in food packaging and, uh, you know, corporate communications and I don't, you know, mind, you know, when you're designing, uh, gluten-free noodle packaging i mean that's okay you know the world needs my you know i need gluten-free things my my wife does too like that's that's great that's important but you know if i had my druthers would i would rather be working on um you know spider-man or venom or uh gi joe or transformers you know well absolutely you know i'm same challenges same 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 work how do you communicate with people on packaging how do you tell the story you know how do you have this design craft that you, this level of craft that you want to have i mean all the same stuff it just applied to something else so it's not all fun and games but i mean if i you know if it's up to me i'd rather do the thing where more people are connected you know no one walks through the store and is like i'm so excited about this noodle packaging <laughs> you know i mean the company's excited because you know they want to sell more noodles that's great yeah. i mean i think it's fine that's part of commerce right but also when you get the feedback from somebody and saying hey you know what your book is you know has a special place on my shelf or you know like i bought this because of your packaging like that's really fun you know or like this is my favorite thing enough that i'm going to wear it on my wrist you know like it's it's hard to beat that that kind of connection, you know. And it's again, it's not it's not about me. It's about this shared thing that we you know that we're into together, you know. And I just think it's 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 satisfying. So if I can continue to do that, I would love to. Do you think there was because in your book you talk about um, sort of the the demise of Atari, and I think it, that kind of era there was a bit of a dip in some of these big brand geek culture. Do you think you grew up in a bit of a, a peak point for geek culture and then it dipped off and maybe we're now coming to another peak where if you're in the middle bit, you might have a more negative view on geek culture? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think there are sort of these peaks and valleys, but I, I think there's probably something else there. I mean, it depends on which fandom you're in i think before you know you look at the 80s and there was sort of a monoculture where it's like you know we had five channels you know we had you know everybody was watching kind of the same things the only toys that there were were the things you could buy at toys or you know toys r us you know like there was very much a shared cultural experience so i think 
I think, yes, I think that was a peak time. I mean, people talk about like 1982 as like one of the greatest years for genre film. You know, you had Blade Runner and, uh, the you know, what else came out? The Thing and all these E.T., all these phenomenal like films that we hold up as like these just amazing science fiction and fantasy, all the stuff like it's a great year for all that stuff. Uh, and then maybe there's a dip there. And now we're coming back to this, like there's almost more, you know, geeky stuff than you can really keep track of, you know, you're like, Oh, have you watched Batwoman? Have you seen the, the goth? I mean, there's too much of it. I can't keep track of it. It's just why I've, you know, I've, I haven't watched Star Trek until it's been out for four years. Um, but I think, you know, and maybe there's a, a valley there, depending on what you're into. But also, there's a whole other, you know, family tree of geekness. Like, you know, what about all the people now who are like, I'm, you know, we're coming home from college and saying, I'm going to go find my PlayStation 1 that I dusted off. And, you know, it's like a whole different generation of geeks and they have all their own stuff. You know, then the, the rise of like the super 90s stuff where we're getting, you know, reboots of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You know, and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Again, it's my younger brother stuff where it's like, wow, this is this is all still relevant. And I think it just depends on which one of those trains you're on. Uh, I mean, I think it does it does beg the question of when will when will we get some original stuff? I mean, I think it's so easy to keep recycling some of the same stuff and trying to refresh it for, you know, same audience. But I think the you know, I think Lucasfilm people are starting to realize that you can't keep you know, going back to the same well of 40 and 50 year old Star Wars fans, like you got to figure out a way to make something new. Um, and I get it. I mean, you think about the times we live in, you know, it's like life's crazy and hard. And, you know, whether you're talking about pandemics or, you know, wars or politics, I mean, people want, I think people want something that's safe and familiar. You know, I'd, I'd rather watch Frasier, you know, than deal with that. Or, you know, I just want a respite from what's going on in the world. So, Maybe I would rather see a Ghostbusters sequel than see something I don't know about. But, it, you know, if you take that to its logical conclusion, we, you know, in 10 years from now, we will have no new stuff, right? It'll just be the constant retreading. It's like, I'm excited to see the Batman, the new, the Batman, you know, this weekend. But I don't, you know, how many more Batman movies do we need? You know, uh, can we, can we do something different? You know, and I get it. I mean, you know, you understand the market forces for these changes, but I also, Hope that uh, we can be making new stuff so that 20 years from now, you know, some kid can be like, yeah, I grew up with that and it's so cool. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, oh, it's the, the Sky Captain franchise, you know, or whatever it is. I don't know. You know, it's some brand new thing. And uh, and all the old people will be like, wow, we didn't have that when I was a kid. Right. But but like everybody needs their own stuff. Like I don't need my kids to be into G.I. Joe still 40 years later. You know, they have their own stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I saw someone say the other day, if this new Batman film make to, makes us watch his parents die again, they're leaving the cinema because it just, no, <laughs> we don't need it anymore. Uh, yeah, you know, and I appreciate it for a, you know, from a creative challenge. It's like, how do you tackle this in a different way that hasn't been done before? But at some point, you got to be like, okay, you know, can we put our resources towards something else that's really interesting? I don't know, but it's big. It's big culture, though. I think that's we're talking about the last bastion of you know mass culture, where it's like we we want a movie that's going to make a billion dollars, right? So, but there's all these other opportunities for you know whether it's you know smaller you know TV series or small films or indie act you know toy toy companies. I mean, there's all these opportunities with culture sort of fragmenting out. 
there's all these opportunities to work with these small, interesting things. I mean, you know, you see people starting their own toy lines and finding an audience. Everything doesn't have to be big. And the audience is so fragmented that if you're into, you know, anime-inspired designer vinyl action figures that look like, you know, restaurant condiments or something like that, there's probably a whole, like, you know, subculture dedicated to that. And, you know, maybe you can make a living doing that. And if you do it, you know, more power to you. (laughs) Hopefully someone will now get onto that. Oh, I hope so. I hope that's a thing. I hope it already exists. That'd be fun. I want to see a walking, talking mustard bottle, you know? (laughs) Um, What are your hopes then for the future of geek culture and in particular sort of people's impressions on it as well? Well, I would like to retire the, the idea of like toxic fandoms. I would, I would love for fandoms to be a place where people, it actually brings people together instead of divides them, you know, and that sounds sort of, touchy feely, but people get into this for the love of something, you know, like they're really, you know, they connect with a story, you know, whether it's a character or it's a game or it's a shared experience of doing a thing. Um, I just, I would, I would hope that like geek culture can be more welcoming in that way. And there's room for everybody on this boat. And, and if it's, if this thing's not your thing or that thing's not your thing, just move along and find something else. There's a lot of opportunities. So I, I'm of the inclusive mind on this stuff. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for everybody. So I, I hope that it can geek culture at its best is something that connects people and doesn't divide them that like unites them around shared storytelling, you know, and the love of characters or stories. I mean, cause really that's what it comes down to, right. Is, you know, our shared love of telling stories. And I think that's something that can be common ground instead of something that pushes us farther apart in a time when I feel like we can use anything that can connect us as, as much as possible. Everything else seems to be dividing us. You can find Tim on Twitter at Lapetino, that's L-A-P-E-T-I-N-O, or on Instagram at Tim Lapetino. You can find more information about him and his work on his website, timlapetino.com. You'll find links on his website to the multitude of projects he is involved with, whether it be design, writing or speaking. You'll also find links to his books, Art of Atari and Pac-Man Birth of an Icon, either on his website or in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. You can contact the show at Era of Geek on social media or head to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. If you like the show, please do leave a review and tell your friends. You can also leave a review on podchaser.com.